For the meditation this morning, I would like to read a portion from Luke's Gospel. If you'll turn with me to the 22nd chapter, we're going to start at the 66th verse and go into the 23rd. Luke 22, starting with verse 66. These events uh, follow not only Christ's capture in the garden, but also Peter's denial of him and the beginning now of the trial before the Jewish leaders. Luke twenty-two sixty-six. And as soon as it was day, the elders of the people and the chief priests and the scribes came together and led him into their council, saying, Art thou the Christ? Tell us. And he said unto them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I also ask you, you will not answer me, nor let me go. Hereafter shall the Son of Man sit on the right hand of the power of God. Then said they all, Art thou then the Son of God? And he said unto them, Ye say that I am. And they said, What need we any further witnesses? For we ourselves have heard of his own mouth. And the whole multitude of them arose and led him unto Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, saying, Art thou the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, Thou sayest it. Then said Pilate to the chief priests and to the people, I find no fault in this man. And they were the more fierce, saying, He stirreth up the people and teacheth throughout all Jewry, beginning from Galilee to this place. When Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked whether the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged unto Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself also was at Jerusalem at that time. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceeding glad, for he was desirous to see him of a long season, because he had heard many things of him, and he hoped to have seen some miracle done by him. Then he questioned with him in many words, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. And Herod, with his men of war, set him at naught, and mocked him, and arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him again to Pilate. In the same day, Pilate and Herod were made friends together, for before they were at enmity between themselves. And Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people, said unto them, Ye have brought this man unto me as one that perverteth the people. And behold, I have examined him before you and have found no fault in this man touching those things whereof ye accuse him. No, nor yet Herod, for I sent you to him. And lo, nothing worthy of death is done unto him. I will therefore chastise him and release him. For of necessity, he must release one unto them at the feast. And they cried out all at once, saying, Away with this man, and release unto us Barabbas, who for a certain sedition made in the city and for murder was cast into prison. Pilate, therefore, willing to release Jesus, spake again to them, but they cried, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. And he said unto them the third time, Why, what evil hath he done? 
I have found no cause of death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. And they were instant with loud voices requiring that he might be crucified. And the voices of them and of the chief priests prevailed. And Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they required. And he released unto them him that for sedition and murder was cast into prison, whom they had desired, but he delivered Jesus to their will. I've read until the 25th verse of the 23rd chapter. Let's kneel for prayer. Loving Father in heaven, the Jewish world celebrates this weekend as the Passover where they remembered the release from bondage from the land of Egypt thousands of years ago. But Lord, uh, the fulfillment of your Passover, which you instituted through Moses, appeared 2,000 years ago. As your word says in Corinthians 5, he is our Passover. The Lord Jesus Christ is our Passover. And everyone that looks up to him in faith as the serpent that was raised in the wilderness on a pole can be healed from their diseases, from their sin. Lord, we pray this morning as we learn again of your marvelous gospel story, the good news that Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners, as the Apostle Paul tells Timothy, and to us. And that is why perhaps today is called Good Friday. Because it's good news for us, good news for mankind, that we have atonement for our sins. And Father, we pray this morning as we contemplate your word, as we meditate upon your word, that this gospel message, which is the power of God unto salvation unto everyone that believeth, that we would all absorb and accept, believe and receive And act upon this gospel message. Father, we look around us and we look at your word being fulfilled to a T. And we see the nations raging, the heathens raging. 
and the people imagining a vain thing. And one day you will come, Lord Jesus Christ, no longer as the Lamb that was slain upon the cross of Calvary, but as a victorious King coming to claim your own. We pray that everyone in this building, everyone that we know of that are our loved ones and dear ones and friends and relatives would come to know you as Lord and Saviour, as the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Before it's too late. Father, we pray and we thank you for this opportunity that you've given us yet another day, another day of life and breath to hear your word to obey your word and to worship you as the only true and wise God. Father, we thank you for being with us, for bringing us together. We pray that we may feel your presence this morning. We pray that you'll be with the brother as he would expound your word and that each and every one of us would receive it with open hearts, in meekness mingled with faith. Father, we're also mindful for the many that we know are suffering, are in illness and disease. And we thank thee, Lord, that we can see once again Sister Olga Urdog here this morning. We pray that you would be a special blessing to her and you'd give her comfort and strength and healing and that she may feel your presence To know that wherever you are, she has comfort and strength and eternal hope. We pray for others also that have attended our church and now are suffering. Pray for Lily Vukov Bouvet. We pray that she would feel your call. That she would feel that you love her and that you want her to come to the throne of grace. We also pray that you would give her healing. She has a young daughter that needs her and a family that needs her. We pray that you would be her comfort, her strength, her healer. Lord, we pray that she would call upon you in the day of trouble, that you will hear her and that she would glorify your name. There are many, Lord, that we cannot enumerate, enumerate during this limited time we have together, but we pray that you would hear the humble cries and that you would hear the prayers that have been going up week after week after week, day after day after day for our loved ones. And with all of this, Lord, we pray that you would be glorified. That our prayers will not be in vain. And that we would give you the due worth, thanks and the worth who you really are. The worship as the living God. 
Lord, we are mindful for those that are in the war-torn country of Ukraine. Many innocents, children are being slain. Mothers crying for their kids. Oh Lord, we pray that you will do what needs to be done. We cannot tell you what to do, Lord, but we plead for mercy and grace and that your presence will be made known as it has been in history past. That nothing goes past you. Nothing is done without your sovereign will, without your sovereign decrees. And how you allow things to happen that would remind men to return to the Lord and to seek their salvation and to follow their lives as he commands. We thank you, Lord, for your presence with us now. We pray for your blessing upon this day, upon the worship, upon the fellowship, and upon each and every one that we have been praying for these many, many years. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As I was considering what the Lord might have us meditate on this morning hour, and in light of the holiday today, which commemorates the death of our Lord. I decided not to read perhaps the traditional passage about his actual crucifixion and instead to read the events that led up to it. If you're anything like me, these familiar passages of scripture almost take on a bit of an air of pantomime, like a we're watching actors in a play. We know how the play is going to end. We know what comes next. We simply accept it playing out at its own speed, and we don't often step back from the whole event and consider either what it must have been like or how it differed from other things. We just know it as the story of the Holy Week and Christ's crucifixion and resurrection. When you look at all of Christ's life, if you consider the Gospels as a biography of his life, if you were to see them for the first time, you would be struck by how odd the Gospel accounts really are compared to regular biographies. A typical biography begins with the, the birth, the early formative years, usually the pivotal event, that changed the course of that person's life, and then spends most of its time telling us what he or she did during their life that made them noteworthy. Usually a small portion is devoted to the death of the individual, and then there's some kind of an epilogue, a, a conclusion drawn from the what came after the life of the one who was worthy of being written about. 
That's typically how a biography follows. Read the Gospels. You'll see they break almost every one of those um, typical structures. One of the Gospels doesn't even bother recording his birth. It goes straight into his life. There are huge holes. He only lived for 33 years, and yet we know very little between when he was born and when he was, I guess, about 12 or 13 years old. And then again, we know nothing from that point until he is 30. We don't even know much about his family. But when we get to his death, the whole pace of the gospel slow down. Time seems to move into slow motion as, as these huge events like wheels turn. And one thing leads to another, leads to another. There's a, there's a sense of an inescapable conclusion to the whole thing. I'd like us to stop now and consider that. Why might that be? Did you also notice that the Gospels have no epilogue? He simply dies, simply, dies, resurrects, and is gone. There's no detailed explanation, even for the full significance of the events. What an odd biography. What an odd way to record the life of a person. But how fitting for one who claimed to be the Son of God. You'll notice in some of the things we read here, how, and even some of the things we didn't, how odd Christ's last week was compared to the rest of his ministry. As he began his ministry, many times he said to those that he healed, don't tell anyone. Go, show yourself to the priest. When they came to try to make him king, he resisted them and rebuked them. And now here he comes in a procession into the holy city, being acclaimed as a king. Now is the time for openness, no longer things being hidden. What really struck me, though, is what we began to read in verse 66 of 22. Now that Jesus is finally in the power, in the grasp of the Jewish leaders that wanted to kill him after slipping through their fingers so many times, now when there can be no opportunity for release, this discussion happens. Art thou the Christ? Tell us. Listen carefully to what Jesus says here. If I tell you, ye will not believe. And if I also ask you, ye will not answer me, nor let me go. Therefore, because of these two statements, listen to what he says. Hereafter shall the Son of Man sit on the right hand of the power of God. Then they ask him plainly, Art thou then the Son of God? And he said unto them, Ye say that I am, or it can also be rendered as, It is as you say. It was an affirmative. How many times had Christ been asked this question before during his ministry? I can think of at least a handful just off the top of my head. 
All men mused whether he was the Christ or not. About John, and John was clear. When Christ was asked, oh, by what authority do you do these things? He gave them no straight answer. He just simply said, well, whose authority did John rely on? And they couldn't answer him, so he says, I'm not going to answer you. But now, now when there can be no other option but death, he tells them exactly who he is. Now there is no ambiguity. He says clearly, if I tell you, you won't believe. You're not one of mine. If I ask to be released, you won't let me go. Okay, now I'll tell you. I am the Son of God. And he knew what their reaction would be. We read already before Holy Week began that Christ set his face steadfastly toward Jerusalem. He knew what was coming. And he breaks now all the rules, all the patterns that he had set in his ministry up to that point. What need we any further witnesses? For we ourselves have heard, a, heard of his own mouth. The, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees that were part of that council didn't stop to think why he would make that clear admission now. Wouldn't the logical thing be at this point to say, you've misunderstood me. I came speaking on God's behalf as the prophets of old that your forefathers persecuted. He didn't choose that route. He intentionally chose the way to death. Pilate asks him now, Art thou the king of the Jews? This is noteworthy in and of itself. Christ actively avoided people of political importance during his ministry. Herod wanted to catch him. And Christ said, you go tell that old fox I do miracles today and tomorrow and then I'm gone. But it's not possible that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. No one stopped to think why. Why are things being done differently? Who is this man? The only one who asked that question was Pilate. The only one with at least a casual interest in the truth. We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ a king. What a joke. This man? is going to forbid giving tribute to Caesar, this bloody mess of a man who stands before me? At best, he's a madman. No one's going to listen to someone who looks like this. Where are his followers? Where's his power? The charge was ridiculous on its face, and Pilate saw through that right away. And Pilate said to the chief priests and to the people, I find no fault in this man. And they were the more fierce. You see, from this point on, things are now confirmed. Things are proceeding in the way that God had not only foreordained, but planned and brought to pass. Peter, in his sermon, his great sermon in the beginning of Acts, says, your, your wicked leaders have slain the Lord of glory. 
as God ordained. Because if they had known differently, they wouldn't have done it. If they had known who he was, they wouldn't have done it. But they were now confirmed in their unbelief. And so everything now is proceeding according to God's plan. Then Pilate catches something interesting. He hears that he's from Galilee. Oh, good. What politicians love to do, pass the buck. Not my fault. Okay, send him off to Herod. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceeding glad. He was delighted. Finally, a chance to meet this miracle worker that I've heard so much about. Maybe he's going to, now that his neck's on the line, maybe he's going to produce something. The last guy that was here under my uh, authority had no miracles. John. And even after I had him killed, nothing much seemed to happen. Maybe this man's different. Maybe, maybe he's going to show me something new. Then he questioned with him in many words, but he answered him nothing. Why did Jesus speak to the Sanhedrin and to Pilate, but not to Herod? It's an interesting question, but the simple answer is simply, God didn't have anything to say to Herod. He would have known a little bit about the history of this man, beginning with his father's, I guess, order to have the infant slain in Bethlehem. What more could he hear? Herod, at least, though he was no full-blooded Jew, He at least knew a a thing or two about the Jews and about their religion. But the Son of God had nothing to say to him. And the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. Herod was, if you could choose one word to describe him, would be paranoid. He was always worried that someone was going to topple him from his throne. And here we see what he thought of the threat that Jesus posed. He just simply mocks him. Others he had killed. His own son he had killed. His wife, I think, or wives as well. Those that might get in the way of his quest for power. But at least Herod realized that this Galilean who stood before him posed no real threat either to himself or to Rome. So he, mess, he, he dresses him in a, in, a, in a, this is a gorgeous robe, a robe that would have had the appearance, at least from a distance of royalty, and sends him back to, to Pilate as a joke. And Pilate got the joke. This is the same day Pilate and Herod were made friends together. He realized now that it wasn't all of the Jews and the half-Jews ganging up on him and against Rome. He realized that the real troublemakers were the Jewish leaders. And Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people, said unto them, You have brought this man unto me as one that perverteth the people. Ironic. Turns away the people, turns them aside out of the right way. Who could prove that? The best that the the Pharisees could do was to say, He said he would destroy the temple and raise it in three days. Again, not a very credible threat, especially for those that have seen the ruins of that temple and the size of those stones. 
Behold, I, having examined him before you, have found no fault in this man touching those things whereof ye accuse him. Here we get for a moment of time to step back from earthly society and see what's really going on. You know, nowadays, <clears throat> really, I guess because of television and maybe radio a little bit before that, we understand a lot more about the legal process than previous generations maybe did. Courtroom dramas in the movies and television shows featuring lawyers and so on have made us familiar with the ideas of jurisprudence, of evidence and witnesses, of juries and verdicts and sentences. But this man from Galilee received no fair trial that day. And we see the vaunted impartiality of blind justice and the supposed rigid morality of religion are both stripped bare and shown to be lacking in this man. The justice of Rome on the banners of the Roman armies, there were four letters, S-P-Q-R, and it stood for the Senate and the people of Rome. The idea was Roman law and Roman authority was coming, and it was ironclad. The Roman justice system was a, something they prided themselves on, and yet here we see the Roman justice system used as an instrument of torture and death by the conniving religious authorities, the followers of the one God who gave them Ten Commandments, who taught them the importance of doing the right thing, a God who was so awesome, so mighty, he could not be depicted in bodily form, a God whose laws were so great that the other nations were supposed to marvel at them, And yet, in this moment of time, this man who claims to be the Son of God exposes the fallacy both of human justice and human-centered religion, strips them bare, shows them for the sham that they are. Now, they had a tradition. At the feast, there was a tradition that one of the prisoners would be released. An opportunity for clemency. Those that had been perhaps uh, accused of sedition against Rome, um, those that were some form of political prisoner or who had been wrongly accused, could get a second chance. And if there was enough people shouting the person's name, they could be released. No strings attached. And so Good Friday came for the first time, first to Barabbas. Not to anyone else. He was released for no good reason. The Bible is silent on this character after this mention. We don't know what he did or where he went or what his end even was. A footnote, if you will. But I wonder, after the news 
on Sunday morning began to circulate, if he was still in Jerusalem, what did he think? He knew that his life had been traded for one who had done nothing wrong. In fact, even the prisoners that were crucified with Christ knew that. They knew he was blameless. When the prisoners know you're innocent, what does that say about the justice system? Pilate again was willing to chastise him and let him go. Nothing further. But the Jews demanded the maximum sentence, crucifixion. A practice so horrible, it was, uh, I think it was Cato maybe that said that no Roman eye or ear should ever witness it. It was to be reserved for the worst of the worst outside of the confines of Roman citizenry. And this is what they demanded. Not a quick death, a public, shameful, painful death. Because he said he was going to destroy the temple in three days. And Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they required. Christ no longer hiding, no longer dodging questions, no longer fleeing the crowds, no longer avoiding political uh, notables, now exposes himself to them and walks willingly to his death. We skip ahead and I'd like to just read in closing some verses from the, toward the end of 23. Verse 39. And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing that thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. Even the ones condemned to the same fate realized that this man was suffering of his own accord because of what he says in the next verse. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. What? What kingdom? He's suffering the most shameful, painful death possible. Where is the kingdom? And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Do you see how backwards everything was in this final week of Christ's life? The gospel writers took great pains to record all of the details for us. This was no myth cooked up after the fact. 
Who would record words like, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me for their great hero? There's no even explanation of what was going on at that time in the Gospels themselves. There's very little. These things are just simply presented for us. Presented for us to draw conclusions for ourselves. Which will it be? Will we join the other thief and hurl accusations at him? Why didn't you give us more proof? Save yourself and us. Or will it be a recognition that this was no ordinary man? And the things that he did were intentional. They only make sense if they were intentional. And then what about the disciples? How would you take these events and spin them in a positive light? We're very familiar with news spin these days. It's gotten to the point really where I don't particularly believe any one source anymore. I kind of consider they're all telling their own version and maybe if I put them together, I'll arrive at some sort of approximation of the truth. But how would you have spin, spun <clears throat> those horrible events into something glorious if Christ really had died and the disciples had stolen away the body as was commonly reported. No, dear ones, it only makes sense when we realize that he himself chose the way. The one who began his ministry by going off alone to commune with his father now brings along his friends and asks them to pray with him in the garden. The one who is so fearless in the temple now fears in the garden as he faces this horrible prospect <clears throat> of whatever it might mean to be separated from his father. And he does so willingly. What will you do with that? It makes no sense any other way. This was no ordinary man. These are no ordinary biographies. All the Pharisees had to do was to show, point to a, to a tomb that was still sealed or to a body, produce a body. Or simply wipe out the few misguided ones that were starting some kind of a cult. But they could not. They did not. And here, 2,000 years later, we remember that fact in a holiday set aside by a secular government that still is feeling the lingering effects of that man from Galilee. May the Lord add whatever was lacking to what was said. Would a brother please select a hymn?